0: And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to China Corner Office, a podcast produced in partnership with SupChina, featuring conversations with business leaders from around the world about the challenges and opportunities of doing business in China, the world's most dynamic economy. I'm Chris Marquis, a professor of business at Cornell, where I teach and research on this same topic. Every episode, we talk to an executive at a company doing business in China and explore what has led to their personal and business success and also some of the challenges they've encountered along the way. With geopolitical tensions between the U.S. and China on the rise, understanding how business can compete in China is more important than ever. If you're interested in doing business in China or are looking for insights to adjust your current business strategy, this is the show for you. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we're talking to Jerry Wong, founder and CEO of Haito Global, a New York-based asset allocation platform that works to direct clients' investments and developed in emerging markets through an emerging market credit fund, early stage venture fund, and other products. Jerry received his bachelor's degree in engineering from Tsinghua and a dual master's degree in engineering and business administration from the University of Notre Dame, also my alma mater. Uh, Jerry holds a CFA and CAIA charters and before find founding HITO, Jerry was an investment manager at the University of Notre Dame Investment Office. Jerry, welcome to China Corner Office. Thanks, Chris. So I, I, you know, I think first would love to just get an overview uh, of HITO Global. You know, maybe you can explain a little bit about why, why you founded the firm, what some of its distinctive features are, and investment thesis.
1: Uh, of course. Uh, so we started HITO Global seven years ago here in New York. And uh, so as the, you know, from the, the name, HITO actually is Mandarin, means like overseas uh, investments. And uh, so added the global over time uh, to expand uh, our you know scope. So when we started seven years ago, the intention was to help Chinese uh, institutions, family offices, high net worth individuals invest in the U.S. That's the name overseas investment highTO is coming from. and uh, gradually over time we expand into emerging markets, uh, Indonesia, India, Mexico, Nigeria, the large populations and uh, then we added the global um, you know on top of high So the reason I started HITO global partly because my training at the Notre Dame investment office has always uh, been a global perspective uh, because I'm from you know I was born and raised in China. Uh, with uh, exposure in Asian investments, and uh, o- also um, because y- y- you know the the training in alternative investments, and so like venture capital, private equity, hedge funds, those are pretty new to Chinese investors. So um, even over the years, I've been traveling to China. I gained a perspective and built you know connections, and they they are eager, you know, to. Um, to get exposure in outside of China, so that is how um, you know how things got started. Um, how I you know started to build the uh, the Hito Global platform.
0: Great, and I think now I mean you've pivoted slightly as well and are more focused on you know investment in other emerging markets. Can you say a little bit about um, you know? Um, as opposed to the U.S.? A little bit about how that came about?
1: Uh, yeah, of course. I, I mean, when the whole emerging market investment started, you know, everybody talks about the BRICS and uh, talk about, you know, the, the next 11. Uh, you know, Goldman helped a bit uh, on that front, too. And so my um, perspective has from, you know, um, investment experience at the, at the investment offices and, and also because I mentioned my background from Asia. And um, the next will be, about the investment opportunities, because we all know, um, especially after the financial crisis, and the U.S. has been hit really hard, and uh, China weathered um, the, you know, the credit uh, crisis while uh, well, and uh, and other emerging market is just you know start to um, expand and grow fast. We see uh, investment opportunities in the those markets are maturing. They have been showing characteristics, you know, the the Asian tigers, the, the bird countries. So they are the next, uh, we see the growth opportunities.
0: Yeah, makes sense. Can you say a little bit about the, you mentioned this sort of next 11, which, you know, Goldman Sachs, as you mentioned, they christened the BRICS, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China. And then this next 11 is sort of the ones that are coming after that. Because really, you know, China, you know, India, Brazil, I mean, they, those countries have advanced a lot in the last, you know, 20, 30 years. Uh, can you maybe describe some of the next 11 countries, particularly the ones you think are the biggest uh, potential opportunities in the coming years?
1: Uh, yeah, of course. Actually, we have our own term, uh, we call it F-18. Uh, it's a little bit larger scope than the next 11. But uh, the c is the same, you know, the emerging, uh, you know, population, the consumption, the production. And uh, we added FAB because we call it FinTech. And uh, so we are looking at other characteristics, for for example, the internet penetration rate, uh, the financial services, you know, the credit card penetration rate, the the bank account ownership. So we added that, that new element and added a couple new, um, you know, countries. Uh, but uh, like I said, investment suits are the same. We're looking for large populations, you know, fifty million, hundred million, and the largest like um, you know Nigeria. Um, Indonesia, like 200, 300 million population, almost as big as the United States. And roads are a young population. People over there uh, work really hard. Um, you, you know, the, they grow the uh, GDP uh, per capita is really fast, like five, 6% a year. And uh, a, close to the China's level uh, and, and and double roads, you know, de- developed countries. So that's, that's our, you know, markets that we're looking for. And that we're looking for, you know, a political stability, the the open market, um, the supporting infrastructure, uh, you, you know, the friendly regulations. So uh, there are a couple areas we look top down. You know, from a macro perspective, that's how we pick uh, roads at like 18 markets. It's a, it's everybody talk about roads, You know, Turkey and Pakistan. those those are. Very promising, but few people actually go there.
0: Yeah, and so it seems, I mean, that there's maybe you have a set of countries in Asia, maybe Southeast Asia, Africa, and then also, you know, Latin America. Is it it hard? I mean, given the cultural and institutional differences across those three different regions, let alone the different countries, you know, what are some of the challenges involved with having, you know, looking at such diverse uh, geographies?
1: Uh, it, it is hard. I, I mean, you just, uh, just think about the back to the Columbus days, you know, uh, you develop the new market and, and new continent, and you get to know the local people, culture, uh, the environment, infrastructure. So we tend to build it from ground up. So when we go to those markets, say, um, Indonesia, six years ago, there wasn't even like a, a mobile payments and people paying cash. And uh, when you try to pay someone, you just call it GoJack. It's like a motorcycle, and uh, he he pick up cash from you and send it to the other guy. You know, and so that so we we what we do. So we uh, bring the you know the China technology, the other uh, mobile payment teams, and that uh, we work with like Seven Eleven, and you know the 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 market, and they have a cashier, and uh let them to as more like a POS. You know, uh, collect the cash for us. Gradually evolve to current. You know, very advanced mobile, you know, e Um It's gonna take time, and uh, we bring, um, you know, everyone over. Uh, not just like money, um, people, team, experience, technology. Then we help build the local infrastructure, uh, build the whole ecosystem, and uh, we just, you know, try to copy that model to every single one of those markets. It's hard work, but uh, it works.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's so interesting to hear about this sort of cash delivery in Indonesia. And it's not that long ago that China was sort of similar. I don't know about a similar, you know, sort of service, but I can remember, you know, going to the bank and people would come in. I mean, some small business owner and have like boxes of 100 renminbi notes and there'd be like sort of this... Counting, you know, line, you know, line. I'm like, I just want to do my banking service. And I just, have to, this person is, you know, having all this cash counted. So uh, I'm sure that the expertise that you've developed in China, which is really the leader in, you know, e commerce, fintech, has been very helpful as you take some of those models uh, to other countries. Is that, is that right? Uh,
1: of course. I mean, I clearly remember in the early days of e commerce, that's like, uh, say, uh, around 2003, 2004. Uh, you know, the previous pandemic hit China, Uh, JD, that's the leader. And, you know, uh, along with Alibaba of uh, of the pioneer of e-commerce, when they deliver, they actually pay the door. So they bring the books and, uh, you know, grocery to you, then you pay them cash. Then the driver uh, collect the cash and send back to the headquarters. That's like 15, 16 years ago in China. So, and from that perspective in in Indonesia is like ten years behind of China. so when we bring the technology, bring the team over, say uh, Alibaba, Alibaba in uh, Lazada, they send like thousands of engineers over to train them bring uh, bring the technology develop locally, and actually the process accelerated you know they um, it took them five years to get to certain like almost as advanced as china and so mobile in terms of like mobile penetration rate. And it's happening in emerging markets. So it, it amazed me. So the largest uh, mobile payment population uh, pa- penetration rate is not the U.S., not not China. It's Kenya. Kenya is like eighty-five percent, and uh, uh, China is about eighty uh, percent. U.S. is about forty percent. But this is like pre-pandemic. Pandemic accelerated that you know the adoption rate. People don't count cash anymore. They use like NFC, they use like, um, you know, SWAP card or China use barcode. And so it's no contact at all. And uh, I definitely see, um, you know, technology advancement and also the pandemic helped. Um, it's still helping, you know, accelerate the, the adoption.
0: I'd love to talk a little bit more, you know, about either the Indonesia case, or maybe there's another, you know, you know, um, example that you want to highlight, but, you know, so you're working there to help develop this infrastructure, you know, are you, are there companies that you're investing in existing Indonesian companies that, that you know, are you bringing, you know, getting expertise from China, you know, transporting it there to help, you know, other companies, or maybe forming companies yourself. I mean, how how exactly are you working with the Indonesian companies to help spur this sector?
1: Um, so we have this uh, we call it the triangle model. Uh, say uh, the business model, the advanced technology actually originated from from the U.S. and uh, roads are has been tested and, and expanded in, in China. The China has a very experienced team. So in the past, like 10, 15 years, they've been dealing with like hundreds of millions, you, you know, transactions. Actually the mobile transaction is like in trillions of dollars a year. And then we bring Rose to the local market in the, in Indonesia's case. So we formed joint venture with local teams and the, the local team we're working with actually is like sixth generation Chinese family. And uh, you know, they um they moved from China to Indonesia like centuries ago. And uh the the current generation are educated in the US. You know, they went to uh, um Carnegie Mellon and, and uh worked for Citibank in New York and then they moved back to Jakarta. So uh, you know, we, we built this like network that we formed joint venture with the China team. Um the China team were trained, you know, in DC with Capital One. And back to China and uh, build a team in Chengdu. You know that's like a lower cost than Beijing and Shanghai, and very experienced team and but lower cost and they're very dedicated to um, for overseas market. They don't compete in China at all. So this model started more like Accenture. You know, all source BPO model. They have a, a back offices. You know, in Dalian, Qingdao, and Chengdu and Chongqing. Lower cost countries, you know, Western countries, not uh, you know the coastal like Shenzhen or Shanghai. Our roads are very expensive, and because you know, leaving costs and competition. So, and then we see the model actually works. Um, like I said, we bring the experience, bring the technology to the local team. Local team, like I mentioned, they they been there for like six generations, and uh, but they still understand you know Chinese culture. Uh, speak a little bit Mandarin, but you know, train educated uh, in in the U.S. We have the same mindset. You know how how to bring you know um, regulation, uh, technology, and financial inclusion to the local market. So that's that's critical. So everyone has to be have the on the same page, has the same mindset.
0: Yeah, it sounds like I mean that JV model you describe is really probably very fruitful because if you think about. know how some of these technologies were introduced in China you know like you know eBay coming in and you know Alibaba demolished them or you know Amazon did okay for a while but you know JD and Alibaba also you know really outcompeted them whereas you know if you just were to try to bring in a company from China there might be also those same you know maybe missteps because you wouldn't sort of get the culture uh, get the local conditions but by actually by forming that relationship with a local company you know, it's sort of the best of both worlds. Uh,
1: exactly. So one, the you know, the big companies going in and uh, the local uh, authorities are, are kind of concerned, you know, they're coming in, spend billions of dollars, acquire local businesses and, and you know, and they dominate the, the, the small industry. So actually we are from more like, uh, you know, ground up and uh, it's grassroots and, and, you know, bootstrapping. And uh, we, uh, were tied, uh, closely to the local p- community. Uh, in uh, Indonesia, for example, when we got to there, there was no regulation on fintech, you know. Um, you don't need a license. There's no inter- uh, interest rate cap. You can just do whatever you want. So you have a payment system. You have a gateway. Then you can just like start to lend. There's no, uh, nothing regulation requirements on the deposits. On uh, like I said, interest rate. And you can do whatever you want. And uh, that was going on for like three years. And then the the um, Indonesian uh, authority called OJK, kind of like ICC in the US, they got alerted saying, oh, this is, they can't going on like this forever. We need to learn from the US, from China. How do you regulate the, the emerging fintech industry? That's how they come up with the requirements. You know, you need to register for a license. You need to report your data to OJK on a monthly basis and uh, all the money should be in, put in the custodian bank and then not, in, uh, uh, not on your corporate account. So uh, those are start to forming. We actually helped, uh, you know, uh, push that to that front. We want the the, the industry, the market uh, regulated. Otherwise, it's just like a wild west, right? And, and, and uh, it's going to kill the, the industry pretty quick.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I think having, you know, sort of a consistent set of rules. I mean, if you're a strong player i mean that that helps you tremendously because it does you know sort of cut out the you know crazy wild west um part yeah
1: that's the barrier entry right so you know from the we were from new york city or now from our perspective everything's regulated right so if it's not we we have we have our concern that's the different mentality emerging market they're saying oh it's not regulated it's so exciting let's go in (laughs) it's a different mentality here we want to be regulated and
0: right Yeah. Uh, I'm curious, what are some of the other, uh, I guess, local specifics that you have to have to adjust to? One is, I guess, this changing regulatory landscape. Are there sort of other sort of cultural or social differences with how... You implement e-commerce or fintech in a place like Indonesia versus your experience in China or the U.S.
1: Uh, I mean, um, you have to respect the local culture, right? The, the way they communicate and how do you dress. And I mean, the Western, you know, suit and tie is fine. But, uh, you know, when we go to the local, uh, local you know, uh, we dress like a local. And uh, of right. course, we speak English, we transact in U.S. dollars. And uh, that's, uh, you know, uh, global standard. Uh, but, uh, there are caveats, you know, in, uh, we had to follow. For example, Jakarta is so, um, jammed, you know, um, usually I book only two meetings a day, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. And, uh, it's, that's, that's the best you can do if you don't want to miss some meetings. I tried three and the one I tried to fit in the lunch, I, I, I keep missing it, you know, uh, it's just a crazy. Um, but, uh, then you start to realize how you can, Deal with it. You can go with Gojack, right? Right, right on the motorcycle, right? right. So <laughs> that is kind of dangerous. And, or you can just like get up super early and, uh, and, uh, and have late night meetings. So that way I can fit in like a four or five meetings a day, make it more productive. It's like twice as productive. So, uh, I mean, on my first trip over there, I, I had no idea, you know, and I was saying, why only three meetings? And you guys are so lazy. You <laughs> have only three meetings a day. <laughs> Actually, you can't make three meetings. Um, anyway, so you, when you deal with say the, the OJK, the authorities, they're you know, and they kind of concerned, see, oh, you're are you from China? Or say, no, I'm from the U.S. And you, you know, it's, it, there's a certain um, you know competition, or that's like when China start to realize this one road, one by one road policy, you know, and they're kind of welcome it because you bring the money, right? Bring the, the infrastructure. On the other hand, Mm -hmm. they're concerned about what you're doing here and what you want from me. So, um, but in in the U.S. it's mostly you know welcome and uh, and it's the same experience in Africa. So one you know the uh, U.S. firm going over like Google and you know like Facebook, Mm -hmm. what they're promoting is like I'm hoping to build the the mobile internet, building infrastructure so you can communicate, you can connect each other. And uh, when the uh, Chinese firm promote, they're saying about selling cell phones, selling games, and, you know. Uh, it's just like, it's kind of different mentality. U.S. is more about, you know, connection, and and, uh, and Chinese firm are more about, you know, promotion, selling, marketing. Um, you can get it right away, you know, just after one conference. And this is more like a, I wouldn't say not profit, but it mostly, you know, helping the, the local you know, grow. And uh, the other will be just like, how, how do I make money uh, in the in right. African markets? Uh, um, so definitely, we, um, like I said, we have both China and the U.S. background. So we have yeah. to, you know, play the delicate. <laughs> uh, I'm showing, showing them the card, so which, which one is in your favor to us, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, it probably is a real advantage. And, uh, yeah, and I do think that, you know, many of these contexts that you're talking about, I mean, the human capital and financial capital that you bring are really, I mean, not exactly a nonprofit, but I mean, this is a tool of economic and social development that I'm sure that, you know, contributes a lot to the different countries.
1: Yeah, I mean, you have to train them. You had to change their mindset. For example, you, the Muslim, you know, community in um, Indonesia, they ne- never used to work hard. You know, when when the Chinese firm first go in, let them say, you got to work nine to six. They never done that before, and the, you want to work overtime? They they don't. And and uh, uh, it's I mean, those are true, true stories. If you pay them like a bonus, saying "Oh, you're doing a great job, pay a bonus," the next day they're not coming back to work. They're gonna spend like a week, spend all their money, and, and uh, say, "Oh, uh, I'll come back in a week," and because uh, you give me all this bonus, I'm gonna spend them before I work another day. It's just different mentality then. Then they start to get used to you, you know, work hard, uh, make more money, and uh, you know, uh, raise our life standard, and uh, you know, have a better future for their kids. They start, you know, incentivize how do you pre- you know, better education, uh, improve your productivity. Um, it it just it just take time. The local culture is more, you know, laid back and uh, and just like um, you know, spend what you earn. Nobody borrow anything, no leverage at all, and. And so, it's good in a way. And uh, but you know, the when you have new business model, I uh, you want to have people you know fit that model. You have to train them, and uh, some sometimes you have to change the you know the local culture too.
0: I'd love to. You know, I mean, I could see how like Indonesia with a big set of entrepreneurs of of Chinese origin. Uh, you know, that it might be a little easier at times to, because there, you know, might be some sort of sinking of cultural values. I'd love to hear a little bit about some of your African, uh, investments and work in Africa. Uh, you mentioned actually Kenya had very high penetration of already mobile payments. I mean, I know the M-Pesa program is sort of mm-hmm. pioneering, mm-hmm. uh, what are, you, know, you mentioned, you know, Nigeria as a real promising country, given the large population, young population, you know, what are some of the African countries that you think are really promising and ones that you're working with?
1: Uh, I think we're mostly committed uh, to uh, Nigeria. Uh, as I mentioned, the largest population over there, and uh, it has the basic infrastructure. And I like the most is the local population, you know, they're young, energetic, they work really hard. So I, when I first got to, um, um, you, you know, the, the, the country, um, I was surprised, you know, I, I used to, you know, uh, part because, uh, the time difference, I, I woke up early. I, I got out to jog, you know, like really early in the morning, like four or five. And, uh, people are actually walking on the street, walk to work. And, uh, when I get back to the hotel, I asked them, why did they get up so early? And there's no public transportation. They, they walk three hours to work, you know. Uh, we got up for, four, uh, lived home at five, got work at eight. And, uh, after work, and they have walked three hours back home. There's no bus. And, and uh, actually, there's no, actually, there's no paved road. They're walking, you know, in, 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 the, in, you know, by the small trays. It's hard. And sometimes they have to, uh, they have to run. And, uh, cause they, they're going to be late. And uh, so this is how people are, like I said, young, energetic, um, and uh, work so hard to, to make a living and uh w- when we first get there, um like I said there's the, some basic infrastructure, but you know the road is too bad and um uh, there's um you know broken down um cars and on the road all the time and and it it's it's difficult, but it's very promising. Quite a few you know u s firms u k firms uh they come to uh, Nigeria to help to build the uh, you know the the payment system. That the banking system, the regulations—it—it has been growing really fast, and they—they uh, they motivated uh, the local young, uh, well-trained, and some are you know uh, UK or US-educated uh, young generation. They—they they brought uh, the education, the technology, the business model back to Nigeria, particularly in Lagos area. You know that's uh, near the port, uh, uh, a little bit more wealthy, um, um, you know communities. Um, so, it's, uh, that that's where we put uh, money into different, you know, uh, fintech projects and some e-commerce and some logistics, some consumer finance projects, and help the local community and help, the, you know, build the connections between African countries to the U.S. and, and uh, to China.
0: Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about some of, the, maybe one or two of the key projects that you think are most... Uh, interesting? I mean, you, you know, in finance or logistics or, you know, whatever of your project you think are the most interesting to highlight?
1: Yeah, I mean, finance are, um, I can give you two examples. One is a fintech company uh, we invested in, and this is funded by um, a, a local uh, local folk, and uh, he was educated here in, in the States, worked two three years in Silicon Valley, and then moved back to Lego, started the Walls tech company and help local, you know, middle-class families manage their money in the, in, in terms of U.S. dollars. Because, you, you know, the, the local currency um, depreciated dramatically, you know, year over year against U.S. dollars. And local people there, when, whenever they have money, they just like buy gold, buy Bitcoin, uh, and uh, invest in U.S. dollars. So they set up a, a company and help the local um, families and invest in like U.S. real estate, U.S. fixed income, U.S. stocks. So it's through a mobile app, it's very convenient. And mostly just store the money, you know. And and they can put in like fifty dollars in in like um you know QQQ ETFs and and uh, in Texas uh, real estate, you know, through the crowdfunded projects, uh, you can put a small dollar and uh, own a small percentage of uh, real estate properties in Texas. So. Those are, um, you know, um, address the the critical issue, as I mentioned, the local inflation, currency depreciation. And uh, they save the money for their kids, you know. They are going to send their kids to the U.S. study at one day. And they start saving when when they, you know, just born. And that's like uh, one case um, I definitely see leverage, you know, the the U.S. technology and the China model and uh, the domestic demand. And another example will be on the uh consumer side. So we work with one uh China team, actually the team original from Shanghai. They've been in Africa for five years doing trade. Originally they just like buy stuff, you know, from China, um, cheap stuff, you know, sell to Africa. And gradually that model doesn't work because the competition, because uh, you know, I mentioned the currency depreciation, when you sell something over there, when you get your money back, it depreciated thirty percent already. <laughs> Eat all your margins. And uh then we uh, we create a new model. You know, we buy from Africa um, and sell uh, to to U.S. and to China. The local produce, uh, you, you know, the the co- uh, co- coffee beans and uh, the cashew nuts and, and uh, the cabana, you know, the the local food. And what's lacking? They there's a lot of growers and farmers. You know, what's lacking is like there's no facility, no factories. How do you produce them? So they just. Sell them as like the, the raw product. You don't make a lot of money to sell the raw product. You know it's pretty heavy and uh, with shells on. They they don't know how to produce it. It's no electricity. It's really hard to build a factory. And uh, what we did is like we um, we bought trucks, and uh, and so we'll sent to um, Lagos so they can go to the the villages uh, to procure. You know from the local farm, buy from the local farmers. And uh, we, we shipped back to Lagos, and uh, we built a factory over there. We bought the uh, machineries from VNM. It's it's like hybrid machines. It's not like you know what they think of is automated. It's like it's half human and half machines. Like you have it's like hand uh, handled. Then we we'll hire a lot of you know local women uh, to um, you know deshell those like nuts and uh, make high quality nuts, and uh, then you can sell at a higher margin. You dry them and uh, send them to Hangzhou, China, and uh, give them different flavors and sell to uh, Chinese rising middle class. You know, just on huge demand. Those like healthy nuts, kind of like in US, right? Everybody wants to buy superfoods, want to eat healthy, and a lot of roads are are coming from Africa. And uh, we are trying to build the logistics, uh, build a factory over there, and uh, also Uh, We're renting land, you know, um, subsidized by the government, hire local farmers to grow um, nuts in scale. And uh, then you can, you know, produce, process, uh, then ship to to China. So this is part of the global trade, but we're not just traders. We're actually going there, become like a grower, processor, and then shipper, and then then eventually get to the, the end market.
0: Yeah. That's really interesting. I think that, you know, it makes a lot, you know, sense that all these farmers probably relatively small dispersed. Yeah. So creating some sort of logistics system to ca- connect them together, you know, even through, like you said, trucks and have these factories, you know, helps everyone really. I mean, the, the farmers are, you know, can get stuff to a new market. You mentioned you hire a variety of women to process the, the shells. Uh, and then I'm also curious, uh, the 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 finances of, of this, you know it's probably a long period of time from like when the nut is picked until it's in Hangzhou. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure, how how is the credit uh, process you know d- during that time from you know when it's a raw you know very first step of raw material to to the finished good?
1: yeah, it it takes a long period of time. Usually, you know it takes like uh, three months to six months. And, uh, and also Africa, you have like a rainy season, dry season. And then you had to procure it at the dry season, produce them. Otherwise, it gets all wet. And, and uh, um, so we usually um extend the credit to the local companies. And, and for like three, six, sometimes like 12 months, it's like a whole year credit. And so they can go to buy the the produce and the process them and uh, ship them. And the, the longest you know, time you're spending is, is on, on the ocean and shipping. So uh, nowadays you, you're stuck at a custom, you know, because they check for a pandemic and, you know, viruses, it takes a long time. Usually it's, um, that's the bottleneck. And uh, other than that, it, it's pretty efficient in Ch- on the China end. In, the, in Lagos, that's the port, you know, um, you just need to go through the, the process, uh, the, the customs. Um, so we're a patient capital. Like I said, uh, we started by facilitating the trade. Then we start to building the the factories, buying the machinery, the, the trucks. Then we, uh, you know, extend in, in the upstream to, um, you know, rent the land and start to grow. Uh, it really depends. So some produce like uh, kavaana, it takes them like six nine months to to mature. Some like it takes three four years. You know, grow the trees and uh, and so. It's a long term commitment, but it definitely helps you know the local community the local economy
0: yeah, definitely very interesting uh, I'm curious as well, so we've talked about like an asian focused uh investment an african focus is there any latin american uh focus investment that you'd like to highlight
1: uh yeah of course i, I you know um we start to studying you know latin america mexico colombia peru Brazil. So roads uh, like large population. It has been on, on our, I mean on paper, we've been uh, looking at them for years. And, uh, but we uh, never really spend much time on it because like I said, we're most was like uh, Southeast Asia, Asia, and, and Africa's natural extension. We, uh, we, we spend time in like Dubai, Pakistan too. Um, and this is a different route and because of the pandemic, we're stuck in New York. So we can spend more time talking to folks at Mexico City, in, you know, Bogota and get to know them better, get to know the, and the, you know, the local uh, environment. So the roads are critical. We need to understand what what is going on and that we need to find local partners. So it takes time. So we've been talking to roads, you know, on a daily basis. Actually, I just had a call in the morning to, you know, Bogota. Uh, and uh, there there are B2C e-commerce company, and they try to, you know, uh, increase the efficiency, they serve the convenience stores. Those are businesses, you know, uh, the models we've seen, you know, like I said, in China, more like a Alibaba, Tianmao, uh, Taobao model. Uh, they started like 20 years ago, and uh, now it's getting popular uh, in Latin America. A lot of, um, you know, seeking money flow into, and uh, quite a few, you know, Stanford grads or Cornell grads and, and they they, they move back to um, uh, Colombia, Mexico. The team uh, I'm talking to, actually, they are uh, they um, they went study in Switzerland and worked like nine years in Europe and moved back to Colombia, uh, set up the business. You know, um, trying to copy the model what worked in in U.S. in in China. So we see that it's very promising. Well-educated team, and uh, they have uh, the end game in mind because they they seen the big picture. They know what's really going on in Europe, in U.S., in in China, and uh, then they try to copy that to their local countries.
0: That, that's really interesting. It also really highlights again. I think you know the you know your one of your unique competitive advantages. You know a lot of the you know Silicon Valley venture capital companies that I've talked to. You know if they're going to go to some other country, you know, they immediately are really oriented towards the US companies and US model. But perhaps for more developing economies, you know, China is a much more natural analog. Uh, and so, you know, you having both of those connections probably, you know, is very valuable. I'm curious, as you, you know, Latin America is a place that has a lot of US investment already. You know, what's your sense about, you know, how Sort of your China focus and relationship, you know, is a competitive advantage in a market like Mexico.
1: Uh, of course, I, I mean, there's a lot of uh, you know uh, emphasis um, investments from from China nowadays, and uh, uh, most one most recent example would be like the vaccine. You know, uh, a lot of vaccine coming from China. I, I the number I read is like fifty percent are coming from China uh, or Latin America, and uh, also the infrastructure building. So the, the team at, I'm talking to, you know, in Bogota told me the Chinese firm helping them build subways, toll roads, and you know, high-speed rails connecting Bogota to the, you know, the um, adjacent towns and the cities. So roads are, they, they like it, you know, it helps them to improve, you know, facilities and uh, productivity. And, and it's the same thing. Like, uh, you know, in the U.S., we're promoting uh, infrastructure building, right? And, and uh, Joe Biden has uh, like a $2 trillion and, uh, to, to build the EVs and tow roads and high-speed rails. So it's the same thing. And the roads are welcomed uh, in uh, Latin America countries. Um, definitely they see the, the benefit because they bring in the, the team, bring in the technology, and uh, and also bring the money, right? So there's a credit from import-export bank of China and uh, offer them cheaper credit so they can, you know, build the road and uh, start to use them and then pay them back later. Um, So they definitely see the benefit of it. And uh, for for us, they kind of like uh, trying to, you know, copy the success of Alibaba or JD. And uh, a a lot of roads with, um, you know, um, procurement components too. They try to buy from China. And uh, we uh, look at a couple of companies, cross-border B2B companies. And uh, the procurement is in like uh, Wenzhou or Ningbo and uh, uh, they sell to the to the local businesses and and direct so you know cut the middleman they handle all the procurement and logistics and tax custom everything so um that's that model is from is is uh, you know invented by alibaba you know aliexpress so um they're trying to copy that to their local economies and to compete with ali because alibaba is like chinese firm right they can't know every single country as well as the local guys, right? And um, so we, we definitely see and the local competition is picking up mostly because roads are you know, trained and, or with experience in China or, or U.S. For example, the, the Mexico B2B business actually has two co-founders. Uh, one uh, spent time in Mexico and spent time in China. So they they partner together. One is the buying, one is selling, and uh, create a B two B business. That's that's the ideal team, right? And uh, uh, definitely, we see those are very very promising. And uh, they uh, you know they start make money right away. They charge eight percent and on the facilitation fees. Still much cheaper than you handled it yourself, right? How do you you know buy from China and ship them and pay the customer and come back here and they charge only eight percent? Yeah,
0: wow. Uh, such interesting businesses that you're you're able to sort of examine and uh, and and invest in and you know i mean i can see some similarities in some ways between some of the stuff you talked about in indonesia uh and mexico the nigeria operation is very very different though and I, and i you know let alone just different countries but different businesses. I'd love to hear a little bit about maybe some of the lessons that you've learned about due diligence as you are pursuing these projects, You know, given that you're you know going across all different kinds of geographies, all different kinds of cultures and, and, and a variety of businesses too.
1: Um, I mean, we tend to work uh, with a team we, we know uh, over the years, and uh, like some US teams and some China teams, so, for example, for Latin America, we're working with, you know, team based in LA, based in uh, DC, and I, we know over time. So we're familiar with the business model. I mentioned B2B, B2C, payment, stack, Those are, um, you know, test and true models. And, uh, and when we go to the local market, we, uh, we find a team, you know, for example, the Mexican investments, we're working with the local team we know all, all over the past three years, and that they've been working in New York and, uh, uh, online trading, so move back to Mexico and and we set up the joint venture with the team. so uh, it's like we try to work with you know um, as much as familiar elements as possible and uh, you know get uh, get uncertainty out. Uh, so and of course, localization is hard, but you know we we do several research, we do uh, on the ground due diligence. We work with the government, you know, we always with favorable policies. And like the example I mentioned in Indonesia, when there were no such policy, we push it. You know, instead of you know, industry association and push OJK to put a standard in. Otherwise, the market would just go by. It's like, as you said, Wild, Wild West, right? Everybody can chip in. Everybody is like making the money. And they're going to crash the industry pretty quick. Um, it, it, it takes time, but um, uh, like I said, uh, and if you do the right thing and the, if you spend time and patience to build the ecosystem, not to make a quick buck, you know, uh, try to uh, grow roots uh, in, the, in the local community, then you got support, right? So um, that way you stay there longer and uh, you grow with the, in the community, grow with the economy and not uh, the exploitation model, you know, Um, uh, like make a quick buck and then then you run away.
0: Yeah, it does sound like, I mean, you know, given the trajectory of these countries having such a long-term perspective, it's almost like you can't lose. I mean, so yeah, the people that are just out to make a quick buck, I mean, probably they're gonna shoot themselves in the foot in the long run anyways because people won't trust them, people wanna work with them, but actually, you know, taking these really unique technologies, sort of copying from China or copying from the U.S. and then, you know, growing with these countries, you know, I'm sure is, yeah, a re- re- really smart, uh, really smart strategy.
1: I mean, it takes time to build trust. And uh, say for Indonesia, for example, Indonesia last year when the pandemic hit the hardest and uh, the local rupee had depreciated 15% over a like, week. And, uh, we're denominating U.S. dollars. And then, you, you know, those, those, our local partner panicked. And so how are we going to pay you back? And because the, the money depreciate 15% and our margin is 15%. I'm saying, don't worry to pay us back and we're, we're we'll, we'll stick with you. And, uh, then, then gradually, you know, the economy recovered, the currency recovered. Now it's, 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 about at par with U.S. dollars. And because U.S. dollar depreciate a lot too. And, uh, as, as like before the pandemic. So you just like, you had to stick with them and, and during the hard times, and, uh, and then they would start you know trust you. Uh, that's how you build you know, long-term commitment, and uh, uh, that's how you, you know, build a long-term relationship.
0: Yeah, makes sense. You mentioned the, the pandemic a couple of times in, as you've talked about the different deals and building trust over this period. You know, in what other ways has the pandemic affected your business over the last uh, year? Um, definitely
1: you know, stress tested our, our model. And uh, you, you know the uh, during the hardest time, is similar to New York City. And uh, all all the landlord, they can you know um, collect the tenant you know the rent for like ninety days. And it's the same thing in other markets like in Indonesia, uh, India. They close down the city like uh, like uh, Delhi or Jakarta for like ninety days. Uh, you can't really do business during the ninety days. You can't go to work. You can't collect. And you can't ask for money back. And because old um o financial institution stopped uh, you know stopped and uh, collecting payments and uh, for 90 days so the roads are darkest days and uh and then we we stuck with the you know the local platforms and, and after that's over you know when when the lockdown was lifted and the local people started paying back uh I, I, you know in 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 good faith so we actually uh, didn't lose money last year and, and so it was just like postponed so all the payments postponed um, like between sixty to ninety days. So uh, when when they hit to like September, we well, actually were fully recovered, and uh, and that's how you you know um, know your model actually work. You know during during the, the toughest time, uh, your partners stick with you, uh, and uh, um, so in that way, pandemic actually helped. Um, and as I mentioned. Um, that uh, accelerated the uh, adoption rate uh, of the, you know, uh, the online penetration, the mobile payment, uh, the e-commerce, the, the logistics. You know, look at the, what's what's what hap- what's happening in the U.S. Like I mentioned, um, the um, the mobile payment penetration rate was actually lower than some other emerging market because people use checks, use cash. Now it's like nobody uses them anymore. So um It's just like you suddenly just jumped from like forty percent to sixty percent, and it's it supposed to be take you like a decade. Now it's just like over a year.
0: Yeah, very interesting. So, you know, it sounds like although maybe some. You know, worries at the beginning. I mean, the pandemic actually has both, you know, reinforced your trust with many partners and actually accelerated uh, your model in a number of different locations. So, so
1: yeah, we uh, we kind of we have to adopt what we call the new norm, right? This is the norm now, but it's a new new norm.
0: Super. It's it's been super interesting to learn about your business. I mean, this you know sort of triangle model that you describe between you know U.S. and capital and and expertise and companies and, you know, the China unique um, fintech and e-commerce expertise and innovation. And then in these emerging markets, I mean, it's a real you know powerful thesis, I think, that you've developed. Uh, I'd like to take a step back, though, actually, and learn a little bit about you personally uh, in in sort of this last few minutes of the podcast, you know, I guess maybe because both of us had gone to Notre Dame, I'm particularly interested in your experience at the Notre Dame Endowment. But, you know, I'd love to learn a little bit about, you know, how your experience, you know, from your time in Tsinghua as an engineering student, through you know, getting a dual MBA MBA and engineering degree, helped position you for starting and running this firm?
1: Um, I would say I always appreciate Notre Dame because when I graduated from Tsinghua, I was offered a full scholarship to come study at Notre Dame. And later on, I, I, I understand this money actually from the investment office made by the endowment. So they offer scholarship to international students. And so without that scholarship, I could never come to the States. So um, that's one of the reasons I joined the investment office too. And also the investment office helped me to shape my, you know, the thinking, my uh, investment thesis. Um, when I was there, the CIO called Scott Malpass, and he's one of the, the leaders, pioneers, the legend of the endowment world, uh, along with like David Svensson. Uh, sadly, David Svensson passed away um, um, recently. Uh, David Svensson started Yale at Yale uh, uh 1985. Scott Malpass started at the CIO of Notre Dame in 1988. Um, so it's just like uh, my past spent like over thirty years at, at the Notre Dame Investment Office, helped build the team, shape the investment strategy, and he he really liked you know emerging market. He started traveling to China, you know, in the early nineties, and uh, st- started making investments in early two thousands. You know, with um, you know well known firms now like uh, Hillhouse or Sequoia China. It was when they first started, like Chi you know, 2003, 2004, really early adopters. And uh, the current CEO, uh, Mike Donovan, you know, we used to travel together to, to Asia, to China, you know, a couple times a year. It's a huge commitment uh, to, to China. and it made Of course, it paid off, too. Made a lot of money uh, from, you know, hedge funds and venture investment, private equity. Um, and then uh, expand the, to other emerging market gradually, you know, Southeast Asia and Africa. So, uh, Scout Map has been very methodical. You know, when we decide the, the next emerging market will be in Africa, then he start just have the team travel to Africa, you know, uh, go to conferences meet the local communities. And his plan was like, let's spend 10 years to study market. Then, then we have, uh, you know, the a lead, Uh, when we start to make investments. So it's like, so we know, Notre Dame is private school, right? So we have uh, um, eternity uh, in terms of investment horizon. So you can have the money forever. So uh, that's why you have the luxury to spend 10 years just doing market research, just traveling on the ground and meeting people, and uh, then make a commitment when it's ready. Um, So the first investment will be with, you know, the, the uh, former KKR guys or Blackstone guys, you know, they're from Africa, working in London and operating back to home country, set up a shop over there, trying to help, help a local community, doing a local deal. Those are ideal teams to, you know, partner with and uh, to invest in them. So I learned a lot, you know, um, how do you, you know, um, take your time, patience, build network, alignment interest, and, uh, uh, and uh, lock up your capital for long term. And uh, don't don't make a quick buck, you know, uh, and roads are and also what's popular ESG. And uh, we didn't really talk about ESG, but it's embedded in every investment we made. You know, that's Notre Dame. Right. So uh, you had to make it make it right. And uh, it's not about that, you know, if you making money is profit or not. And uh, it has to be the, the, you know, the right thing to do first. Um, so definitely, uh, I learned a lot over the couple of years at the investment office. But like I said, uh, uh, there's no, no shame to know how to global right now. So and I identified the opportunity while I was traveling to Asia, to China, and I learned from the team over there. And uh, and um, yeah, definitely, I definitely owe, owe the team, you know. Um, uh, we're not success yet, but we're still stirred up. But uh, definitely... I, I trace my roots back to the to my uh, years of experience over there.
0: Yeah, interesting. I mean, some of the things that really resonated with me based on what you've said over the last hour, I mean, this long term perspective, uh, you know, establishing relationships, deep relationships, trusted relationships for the long term. And also, you know, you mentioned ESG and something that yeah, we didn't really talk a lot about it as a specific topic topic. But you know, as I listened to all of your comments about the different investments, you know, the social development, economic development of the communities and individuals and farmers, and you know, focusing on labor of women, I mean, really came through as well. So, you know, it's really been fantastic to learn more about Haito Global and your experience, Jerry. I think this podcast will be, you know, very educational to our listeners. So, thank you for joining us.
1: Oh, thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. It has been fun.
0: Thanks for joining us on China Corner Office. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Marquis, Kaiser Guo, and Jason McRonald. Did you enjoy the show? If so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know your thoughts. And don't forget to subscribe to the feed for alerts when new episodes are published. See you soon!